Hello, friends. I'm Wayne Shepherd, inviting you to listen to the following Bible teaching message by Paul Scharf. Paul is a church ministries representative for the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, serving in the Midwest. You'll find all of his ministry resources at sermonaudio.com slash pscharf, where he provides new content on a regular basis, including a weekly column that he writes, along with news and updates. Right now, we encourage you to follow along as we open God's Word for today's presentation. It's our prayer that the Lord God will use this teaching to bring glory to Himself and to work faith in each of our hearts. Here now with the sermon is Paul Scharf. Thank you for joining us today. It's good for us to be back with you. We are Paul and Lynette Scharf. Privileged to represent the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. I serve as a church ministry's representative. And of course, we were here throughout the month of January, if you were with us then. If you're visiting today, we're, as you can tell, also visiting, but glad to be with you, glad to have you here, and uh, wonderful to be back together for these two Sundays, today and next week, and we rejoice in the opportunity to be here in the house of the Lord with you and to serve the Lord together in this way. I'd like to turn your attention to the book of 2 Corinthians for these two Sundays. The book of 2 Corinthians gives us principles for Christian life and ministry. Grace-filled principles. Grace principles. How to live by grace and trust in God. We didn't specifically coordinate the hymns this morning, but they worked out perfectly, as you'll see. Trusting in God, living by grace, trusting in God, which are demonstrated through lives of integrity that leads to confidence. The key verse, I believe, of Second Corinthians, the key to the book, is found in Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. Where Paul says, Our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity. Some of your Bibles may say holiness. There is a textual difference in the Greek text. But in simplicity or in holiness, both would be true. And godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom but by the grace of God, and more abundantly toward you. <clears throat> How do we live and serve the Lord by grace, principles of grace, in this age of grace? Romans 6.14 says, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. We live by grace and we minister by grace. How do we have a grace-filled ministry? And let's add this dynamic into that in the midst of trouble, trials, and opposition. Because as Paul writes 2 Corinthians, I encourage you to read from 2 Corinthians as this provokes you to do that, these studies, you will find he actually gives long lists of his troubles that he has. And by the way, the Corinthians were adding to some of those troubles, as we'll see. I'd like to invite you to turn with me this morning. Uh, well, we're going to come back to chapter 1, 
But for a moment, turn with me to chapter 4, which is listed in the bulletin and which was read for us this morning, and where we'll come back, Lord willing, next Sunday as well. Chapter 4, the theme of the chapter as it begins and ends with these words, and this is also really sort of a gigantic theme for the whole book, is Paul says in both verse 1 and verse 16, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. I'd like to read the first six verses of chapter 4 again. I'm going to read them from the English Standard Version, which puts them in just a beautiful phraseology that I want to share with you. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6, and you can follow in the text that you have in front of you. Paul writes again, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's, here's this word again, conscience, in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, and the word there is actually, although translators are strongly hesitant to use it, but you might guess the word is slaves. Paul is saying, we are your slaves. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. Your slaves for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. And Paul concludes this chapter by returning to that very same theme in verse 16, and this time in light of the coming judgment where all of our works will be evaluated by Christ. And we'll come to this next week, but he says, therefore, again, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. We will not faint. We will not quit. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We are to persevere through trials because God provides comfort, as we'll see in chapter 1 this morning, in the midst of trials. And we'll come back to chapter 4 next week. And we're not uh, demeaning or diminishing chapters 2 and 3. I invite you to read those so you have the context. But this is, Lord willing, what we're going to be covering here. But basically from chapter 1, and from chapter 4. Let's turn back to chapter 1 now of 2 Corinthians. 
As Paul writes to this church where he's had so much experience beginning on his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 18, he spent a year and a half in Corinth, second only to his time at Ephesus where he spent three years. And there is a long and complicated history between Paul and the Corinthians. Uh, There's more background related to the book of 2 Corinthians than any comparable book uh, that we can piece together and know about as we look at the book of Acts and as we look at various statements in Paul's epistles. And I won't go through all of this, and it would be difficult to follow by listening. I invite you to look at a good study Bible or commentary or Bible dictionary and trace this through on some rainy afternoon if we have one of those again. And uh, you can look at what happens with uh, Paul and the Corinthians and realize there are actually five letters that go back and forth between Paul and the Corinthians. Of course, we know of two, the two inspired canonical books, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Paul wrote two more letters to them, and they wrote one letter to him. And then there are three visits that Paul conducted with the, to Corinth, uh, not only the 18-month stay at Corinth on his second missionary journey, but he makes a visit in between the books of First and Second Corinthians. He actually calls it his painful visit. Second uh, Corinthians chapter two, verse one, is the painful visit, and then he makes one final visit to Corinth at the end uh, after the book of Second Corinthians. By the way, let me throw in a little footnote. All the problems, all the troubles they had in Corinth. I'm sure most of you know what I'm talking about, from the, especially from the book of 1 Corinthians. Public open sin, uh, conflicts, false teaching, uh, misuse of spiritual gifts, and on and on and on and on it goes. You know what may be the greatest contribution the church at Corinth ever made to all of Christian history? besides giving us the background so we could have the two books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, they gave Paul a place to stay. As he returned after that, uh, after 2nd Corinthians, he made his third and final visit. They gave him a place to stay and a place to work on that third visit. And it was from Corinth that he wrote his magnum opus, yes, the book of Romans. Probably their greatest contribution they ever made in spite of all their trouble and all their trials that they had and that they put Paul through. Well, Paul is writing 2 Corinthians here. He's writing 2 Corinthians uh, possibly from Philippi on his third missionary journey. And the situation as the book begins is that Corinth is troubled again by a specific group of false teachers. And we'll talk about this a little bit more next week. But these are not just any kind of false teachers. They come uh, allegedly from Jerusalem, claim, falsely claim to have authority from the church at Jerusalem. And they come into Corinth and they call themselves, get this, this is something we might see on some corners of religious television today, 2 Corinthians 11.5, if you have the ESV in front of you, they call themselves the super apostles. The super apostles. 
Sort of like they have superpowers. Well, they did. They were able to divide the church at Corinth by false teaching. Teaching, actually, licentiousness. They were a different form of Judaizers, those that were mixing Old Testament law with the grace of God and teaching false doctrine in a different way than those who had come to the church at Galatia. These were playing right into the culture at Corinth, teaching licentiousness. And Paul says as a result of this, 2 Corinthians 12, 21, When I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. And it, I believe that the super apostles, quote-unquote, were were feeding into the sin that was already tempting the Corinthians there in the tremendously wicked culture at Corinth that I'm sure you are familiar with. Well, these false teachers stirred up the congregation at Corinth against Paul, and he's, he's to a large extent writing to defend his ministry in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 10.10 10, Paul writes about what they were saying about him. His letters, they say, are weighty and powerful. Boy, can he write a letter from a distance. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. And they were denouncing Paul, renouncing Paul and his ministry. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians and appeals to them. And uh, there is so much uh, that is interesting and applicable for our ministries today in the midst of that. In chapter 3, Paul is going to talk about the proof of his ministry. And, uh, you know, these Judaizers had come with supposedly wonderful credentials. And now the Corinthians, under whose minister... you know, under Paul's ministry, they had been saved. They had received the gospel. They had been taught. But now they're asking Paul for his credentials. He says, do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you? Chapter 3, verse 1, or letters of commendation from you? You're our epistles. You're our epistles. You're the proof of my ministry, Paul is saying. If I'm a false teacher and I've shared the gospel with you, what does that make you? Where does that leave you? Have you thought about what you're buying into from these false super apostles? You're our epistles, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of a living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. So Paul undertakes a defense of his true apostolic ministry here in the book of 2 Corinthians. And he is suffering through troubles and trials, some of the Corinthians making. He's writing to defend himself. And it's also, in that context, the most personal of any of Paul's letters. Chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. Paul says, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. 
You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return, for the same I speak as to children, you also be open. Paul is saying, we have opened our hearts to you. Who is we? Well, we know Paul is writing with Timothy from chapter 1, verse 1. And uh, Timothy had actually taken the book of 1 Corinthians uh, to Corinth and brought Paul a report back after that. So Timothy is a part of this whole scenario as well. And uh, Paul says, our hearts are open to you, Corinthians. And your living epistles that we've written, God has written by, the, by his Holy Spirit on your hearts. And we want you to open your hearts back to us. And he's writing in the midst of all these things that are going on that we're going to see more about in the midst of great affliction and suffering as Paul begins his epistle. He writes as Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy our brother to the church of God which is at Corinth with all the saints who are in all Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes into a litany here of how God is providing for him in the midst of suffering. Now just before I read that passage, let me share something with you from church history. In fact, from uh, the great reformer Martin Luther... He had three rules on how to become a theologian. I wonder if you've ever heard about this. Martin Luther said, I want you to know how to study theology in the right way. He says, I have practiced this method myself. The method of which I am speaking is the one which the holy King David teaches in Psalm 119. Here you will find three rules. They are frequently proposed throughout the psalm and run thus. Dr. Martin Luther's first rule for becoming a theologian was the first element is prayer. He said you should completely despair of your own sense and reason, for by these you will not attain the goal. Rather kneel down in your private little room and with sincere humility and earnestness pray God through his dear son graciously to grant you his Holy Spirit to enlighten and guide you and give you understanding. Prayer. The second, <coughs> excuse me, the second element of becoming a theologian, according to Luther, is meditation. He says, secondly, you should meditate. This means that not only in your heart, but also externally, you should constantly handle and compare, read and reread the word as preached, in the very words as written in scripture, diligently noting and meditating on what the Holy Spirit means. Prayer and meditation. I wonder if you can guess what the third element would be. The three rules for becoming a theologian according to Martin Luther. The third rule is suffering or trials. In fact, Luther used the German word anfechtungen which is the word that is used, if you're familiar with the life of Luther, on Fechtungen, to cover the total sense of despair, guilt, and hopelessness that he felt as he went through his struggle in the monastery and his attempt before understanding the gospel of grace 
So he attempted to earn salvation by his own works. And he uses this German word, anfechtungen, as the third element of becoming a theologian. He says, thirdly, there is this testing. This is the touchstone, this testing, this suffering. It teaches you not only to know and understand, but also to experience how right, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how mighty, how comforting God's word is. It is wisdom supreme. This is why you observe that in the psalm indicated, David so often complains of all sorts of enemies. For as soon as God's word becomes known through you, the devil will afflict you, will make a real theologian of you. Prayer, meditation, and suffering. Now in that spirit, consider the words of Paul here in 2 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 3. I'm again going to read from the ESV, the English Standard Version, this time for a slightly different reason. Not that it is so beautifully poetic as it is in chapter 4, but because the ESV has chosen here to consistently translate the same Greek words with the same English words, so they're very easy to follow. And I'm going to emphasize them, and I trust you'll see what I mean as I read. Verses 3 through 8. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father in mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure, you remain under the trial, the test. When you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. And here's where Paul gets into what we're going to think about here for a moment this morning. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. And here Paul goes into the sufferings that he is enduring, which he's going to list again, boast about, to use his words somewhat ironically as he puts it later in the book in chapter 6 and, and in chapter 11 and, and 12 and he talks about the sufferings that he endured to show the true marks of his apostleship as opposed to the false quote unquote super apostles and Paul is teaching us here that great affliction leads to great Thanksgiving, 2 Corinthians is a wonderful book for Thanksgiving. Remember, he's giving us principles of grace on which we can build our lives and ministries. 
and great affliction will lead to great thanksgiving, and it will also, we'll see, Lord willing, next week, increase our capacity to reflect the glory of God at the judgment seat of Christ. Great affliction. God uses great affliction and suffering in our lives. Our time is short this morning, but please follow with me, beginning in verse 8. We'll go as far as we can here. And we're using, uh, I'm drawing on an a outline, since I can't improve on it, from Dr. Warren Wearsby, wonderful Bible teacher now with the Lord. I had the opportunity to be at a pastor's conference where he went through this passage and uh, spoke about these things. Imagine pastors having afflictions or troubles, right? I know, but he spoke to us about them, and he talked about dealing with affliction and suffering and trials. And his first point comes from verses 8 through 11, as we think of the circumstances around us. And here we have Paul saying, as I just read, we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia... Now, we, don't, we have no idea what Paul is talking about here. Apparently, there was some very well-known trial that he had endured in Asia. Perhaps it relates to what happened at Ephesus as he closed the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9. He was talking about being in Ephesus and saying, A great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. 1 Corinthians 16, 9. Perhaps that door, wide open as it was, also let in some of those adversaries. And, and whatever experience Paul had there, it was apparently almost life-changing. Notice what he says. We were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. I wonder if you've ever even despaired of your very life. I hope no one listening to this message, either here or even later on, will ever succumb to the temptation to finally despair and even take their own life. Paul says that's, that was the level of trial that we were under. Yes, we had the sentence, verse 9. Paul offers in this verse really the controlling idea of the book. I keep telling you all these are the keys to the book. Well, they're all essential. You can't have any the book without any one of them. We had the sentence of death in ourselves. Perhaps this was an actual legal sentence, that Paul had been sentenced to death for his ministry. Perhaps he's just saying we're a, we're a walking death sentence because everywhere I go I'm under attack, spiritually, actually physically, legally. People want to kill me. We know he would be killed. He would be martyred. He says, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Now here's the controlling idea of the whole book. That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Do you believe, as we just confessed our faith in the Apostles' Creed, do you believe God can raise the dead? If we believe God can actually raise us from the dead... Can we not then trust him to bring us through this life? We should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says, We have such trust through Christ 
toward God. As we go on down the list here in these verses, we're going to uh, think about how uh, chapter 2, verse 9, for instance, for to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient. You know, I'll think, see if you trust, you're going to what? What did we sing about this morning? If you trust, you're going to obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. We trust in the God who delivers us and we return thanks to him. Verse 10, he delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Paul draws on the experience he had in Asia which caused him to despair even of life and applies that incident to the three tenses of salvation. God has delivered us. He has saved us. He is delivering us. He is saving us. He will finally deliver us. He will finally save us. He will finally glorify us. He has justified us. He is sanctifying us. He will glorify us. Verse 11, you also helping together in prayer. You might take a colored pencil and go through 2 Corinthians and mark all the different elements that Paul brings out as, how, as marks of a grace-filled life and ministry. Things such as trusting in God who delivers us, helping together in prayer, prayer for us, that, notice, thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. See, as we suffer... As we go through suffering, it leads toward thanksgiving. And as we suffer, as we'll see again in chapter 4, it builds us up, it strengthens us as we endure, as we remain under the trial, like an athlete building strength. It builds us up, it increases our capacity, not only to serve the Lord in this life, but to reflect his glory at the judgment seat of Christ. We trust in the God who delivers us and we return thanks to him. And elements involved in this process besides trust include prayer, thanksgiving to God, and ultimately obedience. The circumstances around us, Paul describes... And he's saying, as I look around and I see these circumstances, I think of all that I've endured. I think of all that's happening in Corinth. And Paul says, the key to all of it is I don't lose heart. I can't lose heart. I can't faint. I can't give up. I can't quit. And as I choose to not lose heart, I have to, in that process, verse 18 of chapter 4, I have to look at the unseen. And I have to see past the temporal to the eternal. Now how in the world are we going to look at the things that are unseen? Only with the eye of faith. Only by seeing reality as it's interpreted through the grid of God's holy inspired word. 
And when we do that, then we can remain under our trials, not lose heart. Keep a godly focus. Continue to live and serve the Lord by grace, trusting in God, as demonstrated in a life of integrity, which will continually build our confidence in him. And we'll have to end there with verse 12, which I pointed out to you as the key, one of the keys again to the whole book. Verse 12, our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience. Paul says, in essence, the super apostles can say anything they want, but in my conscience, knowing I will stand before Christ and give an account, in my conscience, my conscience is clear. We conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom. And Paul is going to hammer on that idea in chapter 4 as he gives us principles more about a grace-filled ministry than in, than, as opposed to just our personal lives in, of service. Not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. Oh, dear friends, this chapter and this book is so rich. I wish we could go through every word of every line. The good news is that you can do that yourself. You can search the scriptures and see if these things are so. I hope I have challenged your thinking toward that end this morning that you will go from here. And do that at least between now and next Sunday to whatever ability you have to consider the message of 2 Corinthians and living and serving the Lord by grace even in the midst of trials and suffering, even in the midst of opposition. And that you'll consider what I say, what Paul has said, and may the Lord give you understanding as you search the scriptures. It's wonderful to be back with you for these weeks, and it's wonderful to think about how we are to live and serve the Lord at this time. And I just want to share in closing that the fact that the grace of God is available to each of us, even if you have never received the grace of God, you can receive it this morning by faith in Christ alone. The grace of God is what saves us, first of all, justifies us when we trust in Christ by faith alone. God justifies us by his grace alone. He gives us grace he showers us with his grace his undeserved love on the basis of what christ accomplished on the cross when he died for our sins was buried and rose again so we could have forgiveness of sin eternal life in heaven with him when we believe that message of jesus the eternal son of god who became also man Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians, we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, and God saves us by his grace alone. He justifies us. He declares us righteous. If you've never trusted in Christ alone in that way, you don't yet know about the grace of God, but I, I implore you to do that today, to trust in Jesus Christ who died in your place and was buried and rose again and can take you all the way to new life and a resurrected body. And if you have believed on him, then his grace is available to us in our lives, in our ministries, and we are to live 
by grace, in this age of grace, and serve him by grace. And Paul gives us these wonderful principles for doing that in the book of 2 Corinthians. And so, Father, I pray that you will bless this word to our hearts and minds this morning. Lord, I pray that you will use it to energize us in our service, in our even our understanding and our view of life and the world in this week ahead, that we will serve you by grace and look not at the things that are seen, but looking through your word, see the things that are unseen and bring glory to you through all that we do, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.